0: Hello and welcome to Spy Hards Podcast. I am Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And we're back with our extended coverage of 1987's The Fourth Protocol. And uh, we have quite the special treat in terms of Spy Master interview this week. Uh, Cam, who do we have?
1: We are talking to actor Julian Glover, who of course appears opposite Michael Caine in The Fourth Protocol. But you all may know him best for his work in The Empire Strikes Back, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade... Game of Thrones, or a little
0: movie called For Your Eyes Only. Yes, yeah, so and we there's something to discuss about For Your Eyes Only, which we'll get to on the other side of the interview, I think. But uh Yeah, let, let's let's tackle it. This this is a big get, I think. This is a a fascinating interview, and again one of those actors that has a fascinating spy resume to get into. So I think without further ado, Cam, roll it. And joining us on the show now, almost a man who needs no introduction, but I'm gonna give him one anyway. It is a Laurence olivier award winning actor he is a commander of the order of the british empire he is none other than mr julian glover hello sir how are you
2: hello very nice introduction thank you <laughs> i've been rehearsing all
0: day sir i, I i'm glad i nailed it
2: you've got it right you've learned it well
0: <laughs> <laughs> um well we're we're talking about you this week and you've just brought out a book q to q a career in episodes it's your story And I think what we'll do is take a look at some of the highlights of your career. But like, I think the first question I have for you, Julian, is what inspired you to to write a book?
2: Well, actually, I was asked to do it, which was very flattering. Ah. Um, And I was asked not to do an autobiography. Um, I've always said I wouldn't do an autobiography. I I find actors' autobiographies uh, quite tiresome, normally. Unless they have a particular angle on them or something. Anyway, they're not all dreadful, but I don't like this sort of. I once worked with Richard Harris sort of books. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was asked to do um, a book which uh, talked about twenty or so of the things that have meant most to me during my very 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 long career. Um, in fact, I got it down to about twenty six things. I could I could do a hundred and twenty six things because it has been a long career um but these are ones that have particularly meant something special to me um some will ring bells with with the readers a lot a lot will ring bells like the big films such as indiana jones and star wars and those things and there are theatre things in there too which so, some of your readers will um Will know of, and some won't know. Some even over here won't know about uh, a couple of things that I do. Now, I, they're, they're all under different titles, like um, the best performance I've ever given, the worst mm. performance I've ever given, um, the best play, the first play I ever did in the West End, um, the first, my first film, my latest film. Um, my favourite film, etc., etc., et cetera, et, cetera, et cetera. Old titles like that. Now, I've done it in sort of theatrical terms in that um, they're all things called episodes. That's why I've called it Q to Q, which the moment you open your mouth is a Q and uh, then you stop, then you, there's another Q and you start again. And uh, I hope that the, the text is... Uh, um entertaining, uh, I don't know whether it is or not. Um, some of it is, and, and some of it a lot of it's very serious and uh, as it should be, but not not too much of anything. Um, so it runs down to I don't know, 150 pages or what, uh, and it's full of photographs. That's the point. It's a sort of, as I say in the book, it's a sort of it's a loo book. It's uh, uh, as you sit there, <laughs> or you do, uh, or to elevate its title, uh, it's a coffee table book. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's not a great serious read, which you've got to. Oh, that's very interesting. He did that in nineteen fifty nine, did he? Oh, oh, oh. it's uh, oh yes, I recognise it. Oh, did he? That's a nice one. Uh, it's that sort of book, and uh, so far it's uh, been very well accepted. Uh, I'd appreciate it. And it officially opens at the end of this month. I mean, it's f- officially published at the end oh. of this month. And I have no doubt you will give out the, the details if you were very kind at the end of this, this talk. We're having together.
0: That's the least we could do for you giving us your time, of course. Um, but I, I, And it's interesting you mentioned, like, the way you've structured it with sort of highlights and lowlights, blemishes and all. And I was yeah. thinking earlier when we were sort of forming our questions of what we're going to talk to you about, because the thing you'd always think about is for, when it comes to spy movies, which is what we talk about, is James Bond, For Your Eyes Only. And... I I don't know whether that necessarily factors into the book. I, I'm sure there must get a brief mention with you and, uh, and Roger Moore. It certainly is, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Roger Moore the bit. <laughs> yeah, one, one, would, one would wonder. Uh, but I suppose <laughs> if, if we're going to sort of dally into James Bond for a second, your connection to, to For Your Eyes Only, I'd actually read at one point you were in contention for Bond. Is that, is that true?
2: Yes, it is true in that, I suppose half a dozen of us uh, tested for it, uh, but we all knew at the time it had to be Roger because we knew that um, uh, the um, um, oh um, the saint uh, yep. was was finishing and that he was coming out of it and he was a dead ringer for Bond. So we all knew that. But apart from that, I gave the most appalling audition for it. I was absolutely dreadful. And uh, even if the market had been wide open to anybody at all, <laughs> I wouldn't have got it. So <laughs> I'm out of that one. But you're right. Yes, I was tested. Tested. So I suppose I could put that on my CV. Once tested for James Bond, failed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you got, you got the, the first call, at least. You were brought in. I got
2: that. Yeah. None of of the other guys got it either because there was old Roger sitting waiting to do it.
0: He he was in the wings for quite some time, I think, actually, uh, before he got the job, much like a few Bonds were. But then I suppose by the time 1981 rolls around For Your Eyes Only, how did you get connected with that film?
2: Um, I was contacted. uh, My agent was contacted to say we're interested in uh, Julian Glover. I think that Dana Broccoli... (laughs) cubby broccoli's uh, who is the producer, as we all know mm-hmm. his, her his wife had seen me in a a television show over here. Um, uh, you you see Doctor Who out there, don't you in in, mm-hmm. in Vancouver anyway, um I just done a story of, of in part of which I was a very sort of elegant uh, good liver. We, Spoke very well, drank champagne, dressed very well, was quite smooth and all that. And I think that Donna Broccoli, his wife, uh, thought he he would do. And in, in fact, the whole thing is a. I'll try to keep it as short as possible. But um, I've just gone through the most terrible period in my career. I, I've worked so much in my career. I've been so lucky, but I just gone through about six months out of work, and we were uh, into negotiations for selling the house and, and all that stuff. And should we move, or should we, or shouldn't we move? We had already sold the car and, and all that. And I was called about um, to do um, a film in Greece, and it was a film which was to star Anthony Hopkins, one of those Roman epic things. And I was just about to do it, and I arranged all my digs, my my accommodation and everything out there, when the screen actors' guild strike. Happened and the whole thing was called off. So I was there suddenly uh, with myself and my wife booked into a place and, and all that for about three weeks' time. And and, and oh, Christ, uh, what to do? And I didn't know what to do. Then, extraordinarily, it shows how an actor's life can change, on turn on a pin. Um, I was called about uh, doing another uh, film out in. Um, out in Greece, a uh, thing about Alexander the Great, the great uh, Greek emperor, whatever you call him. Um, and that was to coincide in time in Corfu and all that. So go out and do that. So I, I went out to do that. And in the middle of that, it wasn't very well paid, it wasn't very good. Uh, I was in the middle of that, I was called, They want to see you for bonds. The Bond film. And I said, I can't do it, I'm afraid. They said, you've got to get back for Sunday. I said, I'm here in the middle of nowhere. I said, I'm filming on all Saturday. And and my agent said, Julian, pull your finger out. We're talking about a Bond film here. (laughs) A villain in a Bond film. Uh, Do something about it. You're, You're quite right, agent. Thank you very much indeed. So I went to the first assistant and explained. He said, you've got to go. You've got to go. So anyway, he changed the schedule, and, and I was away, able to get out, away by lunchtime uh, in Greece and um, uh, actually changed my costume in the uh, the lavatory at Athens Airport. Uh, anyway, I got back, and I had a big interview on the Sunday where everybody was there, the costume people, the makeup people, the, everyone was there, and it was obviously just for me. And when Cubby Broccoli and his wife went out to deliberate, um, the costume bloke who I knew before, a man called Tiny Nichols, said, "You've got it, Julian. I can tell that Donna likes you," and uh, <laughs> and indeed I got it. So and I flew back that night, and I got back in the morning. Was on the set at seven o'clock the next morning, and uh, I bought drinks for the whole unit and dinner for the first assistant. <laughs> and that <was> happened.
0: <laughs> from uh, from getting changed in the Athens uh, toilet to uh, flying around world the world with a Bond film, <laughs> it, uh, pretty good upgrade.
2: I should put a notice on the door, shouldn't I? (laughs) Julian Glover changed here for for Your Eyes Only.
1: (laughs) One of my favorite dynamics in For Your Eyes Only is between you and Topple. And I would just like to know about working with Topple on the film and even like staging that fight scene at the end of the film.
2: Well, uh, these interviews, you know, I'm inclined to be, he was so nice and I, Mm. I did enjoy it and and. Uh, what lovely people they all were. And I love that film. And uh, um, This is not that. I can't, If you ask me anything I, I, which I have anything naughty to say about, I'll say it, I'm afraid. Okay. Unless i going to black anybody's name. Anyway, Topol and I got on terribly well. Um, I'd recently done a, a film in uh, in Tel Aviv uh, for Michael Kokoyanis, that great film director. Uh-huh. Which was a sort of biblical epic, so I, I knew quite a lot about Israel and uh, was very pro-Israeli. And um, he just jumped into my pocket, or I jumped into his. We really got on like that. It was it was a lovely, lovely uh, situation between us, and we both liked the fact that um, at the beginning of the film uh, he is sort of rather suspected and. Uh, and then suddenly I'm the good guy, and suddenly I'm revealed as the bad guy. Rather like in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, actually, mm. the same sort of trick was played on the audience, and people seem to have enjoyed that trick. And uh, we enjoyed that, and uh, we we got on well. And the uh, the fight at the end was um, well, that was done over here in England, um, in the, in the studio where we um, they built the top of that church thing. They built it there and um, uh, it looked as if it was like it was in Greece, in Meteora in Greece, where those extraordinary churches on the front, on the top of these rock foundations which leapt up sometime in the ancient history. Um, anyway, it was all filmed on there and most of the time during the fight we laughed, I'm afraid, because it was all so ludicrous. <laughs> the whole situation was so daft. And there was an old Bond with his gun and, and the girl hanging around with her gun. Uh, uh, and I can only say that we enjoyed doing the fight very much indeed and had to put on straight faces to do it because we kept laughing. So that's, that's the, the, the detail of our intellectual attitude to each other.
0: <laughs> I, I have to imagine at some point when you were filming for your eyes and you looked over at Roger and thought, that ah, could have been me. That could have been
2: Uh, me. (laughs) No, I didn't, you see, because I knew I'd got a shitty (laughs) shitty um, uh, audition I'd given. Uh, You bring me on to Roger. I mean, Roger, I'm sure everybody will tell you, or has told you in the past, probably. One of nature's gentlemen, and um, true gentlemen, frightfully intelligent, very bright, terribly funny. And he had that extraordinary gift of. um, when he was talking to you, you were the only person in the room. You know, that extraordinary gift, which not everybody has it. Uh, Because while he was talking to you, you were the only important person in the room. Mm -hmm. Uh, He never looked over your shoulder and all that stuff. But when the conversation came to an end at a party or like that, there was a natural ending to it. And he would go off to the next guy. Um, He used to come. He called me Mr. National (laughs) (laughs) Theatre. (laughs) <laughs> and he came to everything I did in the theatre. He was really loyal, really loyal. And he sort of rather wished um, he could have had a theatrical career, but said, said uh, I couldn't have done it. I couldn't, I couldn't live that sort of life. And uh, I couldn't play those sort of parts and uh, live the life of a the theatre actor. I said, I couldn't do it. And that's why he liked me, because I was a theatre actor. Not because I was so good, I'm not saying that, but because I was a theatre actor and I'd started off as a theatre actor and remain a theatre actor. I've just been terribly lucky in that I've managed to work so much outside the theatre, uh, particularly latterly in, in uh, big films. Much to me really lucky.
0: We interrupt this programme to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources whether it's research equipment hosting or of course constructing a top-secret volcano lair We're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may
1: know We've activated the spy hearts patreon home of our ever-growing lineup of agents in the field episodes where we decode non spy films from your favorite spy actors and Full film commentaries with more intel than a basil exposition briefing cam what have we got in our crosshairs this month? If you want to be a podcast lover, you better check out the latest agents in the field on the notorious 1997 Spice Girls vehicle, Spice World. People of the
0: world, get ready to spice up your life. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. And just kind of, I think, probably
1: one last for your eyes only question. You know, when you're playing a Bond villain, there's certain expectations that come with that. But yours was a little different where it was a secret villain. Were there any kind of quirks or anything you were looking to work in to kind of stand out more? Because your character obviously isn't revealed until much later in the film.
2: No, because it did it for me. It's a very interesting question because what I think was good about that film It had a very good director, John Glenn, was because they decided not to uh, have the villains as people with hooks on their hands or cats on their laps or hats which they could throw and all those things. They decided that the villain villains, the two people who were contenders for villain, should be recognizable human beings, uh, ordinary People within their own sphere. You know, Christatus was a businessman, and um, but also his raison d'être was to look after this particular skater uh, girl, uh, beautifully played, I thought. Anyway, uh, and uh, that was his. You notice, I never the character never made a play for him, never, never, uh, never, never made a sexual advance, and. Um, his whole object was to get her to win the Olympics. And what they did was to make Bond not able to press a button and that building would blow up or, or whatever, or have a magic watch or anything like that, which was you know, done in Bond films, but to have him simply best at doing everything. But he could ski better. He could drive better. He could bobsleigh better. He could jump off the edge of mountains better. He could simply do everything better than anybody else, which for me made that film much more sort of believable in, in within the, the bounds of Bond films, because there was no magic about it. No magic. Um, you know the, the the visit downstairs to find out all those special things he can do was a very limited one, and and um, uh, he just had to do everything better than everybody else, and that's what particularly appealed to me about the film. Mind you, I'd have done it, whatever the script was, <laughs> <laughs> and I loved playing him because he was a genuine person. Mm-hmm. He behaved badly. He relied upon the wrong source of. Of income uh, to to achieve his his goal, and it was not very nice to people on the way 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 up or the way down, whichever way you look at it. Um, but they were real people, so that's for my money what made the film uh, rather rather special.
0: And it, it you know it's interesting because it it was definitely a different direction for the Roger Moore films that they didn't really go back to until until sort of Timothy Dalton tried to play it a bit more straight later on. And I, I think that was a shame, because Roger could play a, a straighter Bond, as, as it were. Like it, and um, I, I For Your Eyes Only is probably one of my two favourite Roger Moore films. But I want to take us away from Bond. We did briefly speak about The fourth Protocol off-air, but it's what we're talking about this week as well. Do you have any memories of, of shooting that film at all? You have a lot of time with Michael Caine, mostly shouting at him.
2: <laughs> well... <laughs> I used to say, people say, "What are you playing in this film?" I say, "Well, I'm, I'm playing that obligatory idiot in the home office, who's the only person in Western <laughs> Europe who doesn't know that our hero is right." Uh, <laughs> that's the sort of role that I, I used to get, <laughs> absolute gobblers idiot, who, who couldn't get it. Um, I, I remember working with Roger, of course, and that again, you see. I get into the trap of of saying what a nice guy he is. Mm. Uh, And he really is a terribly nice man. Very, very generous with himself uh, and with his pocket. Uh, Hard-working, down-to-earth, exactly what he appears to be actor. And one with a great consideration for other people. um, Doesn't laud his profession too high. Never, ever, ever boasts. I've never heard him boast about anything, any more than I did Roger. Actually, um, just you were always in the scenes. You knew you were going to get the right sort of comeback, uh, and so you had to give him the right go. Go back, or mm. uh, whatever you what he would say. Um, he was very he, things like we went down to Windsor for a particular. That's where the Great Royal Palace is. Uh, for a particular sequence, and he took the whole unit out for lunch uh, one day, just like that. And he, he took an hour off the lunch hour, which made the producers furious. But he said, "No, i You know, we've got to have this get together, for, for the unit, uh, so that people get to know each other properly and and can laugh over a glass of wine." And uh, that's exactly what happened. He's that he's that sort of fella, and. I haven't seen him for a long time now, but as far as I know, he still is that sort of fella. I worked with him, I think, three times. First time was in a film called The Magus. Do you ever come across that? Um, Not me, no. No. Um, anyway, the, that, that, my memories of the film are nothing in detail, I'm afraid. It, they are simply part of the the build-up of, um, of a knowledge of another man. Um hmm. that's uh, pain. Uh, well, not,
0: uh, two good people to rub shoulders with, for sure, both michael and, and and Roger there. absolutely
2: I've been so lucky in that respect, you know, in my career. I've met such a lot of really good people, and um actors who are not at all swanky or uh they get on and do the bloody work. They're proper people, you know, they own cats. Uh, you know I mean, and, uh, <laughs> and 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 enjoy being with their wives, and and or don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, real uh, uh, life, I think. <laughs> well,
0: quite. Um, I know Cam has a couple of quick questions about uh, a couple more films you've worked in.
1: Yeah, I want to talk just about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and yeah. we've talked to a number of people that have worked with Spielberg, and I would love to know just from you. Spielberg is obviously held up as probably the greatest director of his generation. From the point of view of an actor working with him, what is it that Spielberg does that feels so special?
2: That's a difficult question because uh, here we go, praise, praise again, or appreciation. (laughs) Um, He's a brilliant director. He casts exactly who he wants to cast. And he casts them for reasons best known to himself. Uh, the uh, castee, um, in my case, me, uh, could, are, are grateful to him for doing that. And as a result, he leaves you alone. He leaves you to do what you do. With gen- It's difficult to explain this, but gentle nudges which will push you one way or another. Um, it sounds like nothing, but in fact, those gentle nudges can be Really, really important things to to, to 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 convey whatever you're trying to do at that particular time. Uh, also, he was very interested in actors uh, contributing themselves to things like text. Um, there was one one particular sequence which I remember so well, uh, which anyone who's seen the film will remember. The sequence is when I am first revealed as being Mr. Baddy, and I'm sitting in a big chair, and they, the two our two heroes uh, are tied up back to back and they're muttering to each other. And I can't remember what was in the original script uh, at all because no one ever saw it, heard it after that. Uh, the conversation started to talk about the girl in it and uh, Sean mutters over his shoulder and she talks in her sleep. No, I thought the story. Uh, she's German, of course. Mm -hmm. says Sean Connery how do you know that said Harrison she talks in her sleep now that line was not in the script that was the one that Sean just threw out and we had to stop the camera because everybody fell on the floor it was so naughty uh, but but, uh, Stephen said that's in that's in the script let's do it again knowing it's in the script shall shall we shall we and so that was in he loved that sort of thing. If you had a little uh, altered emphasis on a on a particular speech or an attitude to a, a scene which might not have uh, occurred to a lot of people, uh, you would say it to him, and he would consider it on his merits. And if he liked it, he would he would put it in. Uh, if he didn't, he would say, "I don't think that works at this particular point in the film." Blah, 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 blah. So you didn't put it in. Infinitely malleable, uh, uh, Stephen. In order to get the best effect, and I know that he got the best out of me. I know, I know he did, and because I've seen the film, and I know he did, because um, I know everything that's wrong with me, and um, <laughs> not much of it appeared in that film, which was, which was very good. I, I would drop, of course, as I think every actor would everything to work with him again. Um, it's too late now, of course, but um, I would, and he. He gave me this enormous chance. I must tell you a lovely thing he did do say. Did say. Sure. <laughs> uh, we, there's a long sequence which your viewers will probably remember. In the in the desert, and I'm I'm in a tank. And it was a very, very difficult day to shoot. Very difficult day to shoot. And it was agony in that tank because it was 100, 102 degrees or whatever it was outside, and inside the tank was by, like being in an oven. And everyone and I short, um, um Harrison had all this riding to do on horses and, and things. And it was all, everyone running around. And at the end of the day, we were absolutely, oh, completely walloped. And Stephen came over and said, "A hard day. Yes, indeed, sir. And he said, uh, Julian, I have to say, your American accent, he said, is absolutely perfect, you know. From after this, you'll never stop making American films. I've never made another. <laughs> oh. <laughs> They're loss. They're lost. Yeah.
0: It, it's it definitely is their loss. And and Julian, I'm I'm very aware of your time this evening. So I've got a couple of quick questions to sort of wrap us up with. And one thing I note, looking at the films that we were going to talk to you about today, and I'd love to talk to you for another two hours, frankly, to talk through your filmography, but it's hit after hit, but an antagonist after antagonist, villain, 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 some of these Roles here. What is it about playing a villain that interests you so much that it gives you something to play with?
2: Well, it hasn't been a matter of me choosing, frankly. Um, mm. That's the way it's moved. And it moved ever since I did my very first film, which was Tom Jones, a film called Tom Jones, which was an 18th century romp um, directed by Tony Richardson starring Albert Finney. Uh, very funny. Uh, have you not seen it?
1: I've seen it, yes.
2: See Tom Jones. I mean, it's a right—it's really outrageous film. And that's where I played my first horrible person. And that seemed to catch on. And I did. I went through all these series, Avengers and the Saints and Rand- Randall and Hopkirk and all those series. And it got to a point where I, I'd say to the producers, please don't cast me because everybody will know that I did it. And um, <laughs> <laughs> there's no point. Uh since when I've played some quite nice people, but mostly you're quite right villains. And I think it's uh, I've been lucky in that I've been able to make the villains people who really do have a proper proper motive for what they're doing. Um, uh, Might not be the right motive, uh, but uh, might not be a a motive you you approve of. Um, Like for instance, in Star Wars, People say you were the villain. I say I wasn't a villain. I was a very, very fine general who happened to fight for the side you don't agree with. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, and so he wasn't a villain. A lot of others have been villains because they they've consciously based themselves in areas which they shouldn't base themselves in, like Indiana Jones. I mean, he should not have gone to the Nazi party uh, to get his money to do this thing. He... he, he so, mind you, I have to say, what would you do for the secret of eternal life? I think you know, you kill your mother, frankly. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, one always has to remember that, that it's late, that is latent in everybody. Uh, depends what the, the, the reward at the end is going to be. Uh, but uh, that's how I've always done it. I've, this sounds very arch to say so, but if you find a truth within yourself, that You know why he is behaving in a way, why he's behaving in that particular way and is going in that particular direction. If you find that,
0: mm-hmm.
2: once you find it, you uh, it should be a doddle after that. I remember my wife coming to see a play, a rehearsal of a dress rehearsal of a play, a Shakespeare play I did, um, uh. It was a play called Henry the Fourth, Part Two by William Shakespeare, and the uh, the king in that um, is a very very bitter man, and uh, he's he's um, he's r- wrestling with his past, and and it's it's, it's all very 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 bad, and uh, but I couldn't I was playing it fine, but I couldn't quite get it what the thing was, and my wife said to me, well the thing is that this man. Uh, made one bad mistake, and he has a memory which is like mine. My wife has a memory which is almost perfect. She can remember what people were wearing in that party 30 years ago. And he's not able to forget anything, she said. And once she said that, everything that I was doing in rehearsals, it might have been pretty well the same but was completely and utterly endowed with that knowledge that he mm. could not forget anything hmm. and uh, that's what happens i hope with um, with the villains that i've played in the past that uh, they know what they're doing they know what they're doing and uh, i think that's but they they properly know that they're not just villains they're, they're, you know I don't know if you ever saw a film uh, with Alec Guinness about Hitler's last 10, Hitler the last 10 days. But Alec played it. Um, he's still Hitler. By God, he was horrible. But as a re- as a reasonable man, which everyone said he was, um, who just did the wrong thing the whole time. But he thought for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And um, Alec played that in the film. And it was really quite, I, w- I was in that film. and. Uh, it was quite disturbing because he was so persuasive. You know, when he said, I think the answer to the Jewish question is to put every single Jew in the world uh, onto the island of Madagascar and shut the door on them, uh, we all went, mm, Yeah, that's quite a good idea. And then we got outside after a house and said, What have we just been agreeing to? <laughs> mm. uh, because Alec was so completely persuasive. And that's the sort of thing, that's the sort of performance I based my. So based on, but uh, which I've used, I think, a lot in my profession, the less one of the best performances I know I've ever given as we um, and this sounds like boasting, but uh, is the most recent one I've ever done, which I have a very small part in the film of Tar. Yeah. Have you seen it yet?
1: I have. Yeah. And I was very excited to
2: see you in the movie. Isn't it the most wonderful film? Kate Blanchett, If she doesn't win the Oscar, there's no, there's no justice in, in Hollywood. One well, we know there isn't. So maybe she won't. <laughs>
0: <go>. <laughs> well, I um, I I kind of want to wrap us up very quickly to let you go because I know you need to get out. But two questions. The first one is because you're looking back through your, your credits for for writing your book. What is a film or a piece of work that you did that you think deserves a little bit more love than it got? The film. A film or a piece of work on the stage, something you think didn't get the love it should have had?
2: Well, you you have to hear about something which is in the book, but which you don't know anything about. But, you know, my career has gone up and down and up and down and up and down, and uh, I'm very glad that it has, and I'm still here sitting, um, and I've got enough to live on at the moment. Um, But there was a play I did about eight years ago on, on the stage, which did indeed tour, went to the Edinburgh Festival, etc. Uh, but it didn't get the, the, the attention it should have got. There's a play called, I'll be very quick, a play called Morris's Jubilee. And it was all about this young man, this old man, oh, uh, <laughs> you wish, Julian, um, <laughs> of, of nearly 90, um, who was dying of cancer, who, when he was a young man, was a jeweller. And uh, I won't say any why, but... Uh, He was the one who had to take the crown jewels to the palace uh, on the night before Queen Elizabeth's coronation. And um, he took them and they had a a long conversation together and liked each other tremendously well and made a vow that they would meet for tea on the day before her jubilee. And uh, the whole film deals with me, with my wife, and my wife being driven crazy by me because I'm always talking about when I'm going to have tea with the Queen, which is just a ridiculous idea, and uh, it's never going to happen. And uh, a young lady comes in as a carer and gets very concerned with this whole problem that I've got about the Queen. Anyway, at the end and uh, on the afternoon concerned. Um, indeed there is a knock at the door and in comes the Queen. Or is it the carer person who came in to look after me, made up and to look like the Queen? And we have a lovely conversation about the queenhood. I completely, my character believes it's the queen, but and uh, at the end of it, I die. Okay, very nice conclusion. Uh, And the audience never knows if it is the uh, the character in it who's dressed up as the queen, or is it they've used two the same actor for both parts. they never know. The audit, I, I'm going to the pub afterwards, and I could hear people having conversations at the other end of the bar. But well, it wasn't. Was it her? Was it her? No, no, no. I'm sure it was the Queen. She's such a good actress, that girl. I completely believed she was the Queen. Yes, but you see, but it created a great deal of fuss. It was the most wonderful part. He was terribly funny um, in a very obvious sort of a person who tells jokes way. You know that? Mm-hmm. That way. yeah so you laughed at laughed at those jokes because he was like that mm-hmm. uh very funny and also very moving very down to earth uh, and it was one of the most joyous things i've ever done in my life so there you are you had a five minute answer to a question and nobody understands
0: <laughs> hey I, I i asked the question i got the answer that's uh that's what i was after <laughs> the last question for you julian before i let yeah. you go because i need to go and this has been asked to everyone that's ever been on the show, including your director for Your Eyes Only, John Glenn, who's been on as well. Julian Glover, what is your favourite spy movie of all time?
2: Well, it depends what you call a spy movie. I think probably Fourth Protocol. Nice. It was a damn good movie. It was a damn good movie. Though I can't remember anything about it now. <laughs> 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 but I remember thinking, this is, this is a cracker. This is an absolute cracker. I've done other movies where I've done uh spy movie. I'm not have I been in any other spy movies?
0: It doesn't have to be one you've been in, but one you personally enjoy watching. It doesn't have to be something you've been in.
2: Yeah. Uh, I'll stick there. I'll stay there. Perfect. Yeah. It's
0: it's on brand for this week, it makes sense. Uh, Julian, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, sir. Julian Glover, the writer of Q2Q, a career in episodes. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for giving us a wealth of knowledge in 30 minutes. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you.
2: And thank you. It's been a most pleasant interview, both of you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. It's been a real honor. Thank you. Have a wonderful evening, Julian. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat with Julian Glover. Thank you to Julian for taking the time to speak with us today. And I think the first thing I want to address is the timeline of this interview happening with sort of real-life events happening at the same time, Cam. hmm yes. Yeah, so, I mean, for those who aren't aware, the actor uh, Topol, who plays Columbo in Four Your Eyes Only, uh, we mentioned him in, in the discussion with Julian just there, but literally the day after we recorded this, Topol passed away, and we're recording this uh, the, the day after that now at this point, and it it it's... It kind of hit me a little bit, actually, because it, we were having such a vibrant conversation about the man and, and sort of his his part of For Your Eyes Only, and you could see Julian light up when we mentioned working with Topple. And then just to read that hours later, it, it hit me quite hard.
1: Yeah, it actually did me too. And I mean, yeah, the timing was freaky. Like just to talk to Julian and I, that was like one of the questions I was the most interested in hearing him talk about Topple, because a lot of people talk about Roger Moore And, you know, I wanted to kind of delve into an actor that people don't hear as much about in terms of Bond interviews. And so, yeah, I wanted topple coverage there. And then to find out just a handful of hours, really, after we recorded that interview that he had passed away was a real like, whoa. So, yes, so people listening to the episode may be wondering in the timeline why we didn't address that, but that is why it just happened on the day of recording this interview and Also, you know, Julian kind of, before he talked about his experiences, kind of gave this sort of, uh, this uh, acknowledgement up front of like, hey, if I don't like someone, I'm going to tell you uh, the the bad stories as well. Mm -hmm. And we were all kind of like leaning forward, like what did Topple do on the set? What did Topple do? Thank God it was a very positive, loving tribute to this man, because again, timing, it could have been very unfortunate.
0: (laughs) It it definitely could have been. I'm not sure I would have taken... uh... Hearing bad news about Topple, especially then having that happen as well, but I'm glad it was all good. And uh, yeah, just a a brief moment just sort of celebrate the man's life. I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about him when we get to our four-year eyes-only review down the line. But yeah, it's not just four-year eyes-only. Yeah, he's Doctor Hans Zarkov in Flash Gordon, and if you're not a Flash Gordon fan, I suggest checking that film out. We've covered it on the Patreon, but that's a hilarious film, and Hans Zarkov is probably one of the better parts of that film.
1: Oh, yeah. And his work in Fiddler on the Roof is just towering. Like, the movie version is fantastic. I recommend people check that out. I never got to see him on the stage. I have seen Fiddler on the stage, but I never got to see Topple in the role. Would have loved to. But yeah, just like a very rich legacy that he leaves behind.
0: Yeah, and it, I think it's just... Uh, I. It, it was just worth a mention from us because of how recent it was and how, you know, as Cam said mere hours later that we'd just been talking to Julian about their time together. And it just goes to show you just how fickle this thing is. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I don't want to get too meta about it all. But guys, give your family a call. Text them. Tell them you love them. Because snap of our fingers, everything can change. But uh, sorry to bring it down. Let's bring it back up and talk about our chat with Julian. Because it was wonderful.
1: This man was a complete joy. Mm-hmm. Um. They say never meet your heroes because you never know what you're going to get. And for me, like, Julian Glover is an actor who was so impactful on my childhood because of Indiana Jones and Empire Strikes Back and For Your Eyes Only. Like, those three movies were such a big part of my life growing up. And, you know, I'm happy to say that I followed Julian's work going forward. I saw him in the movie Tar, you know, at the end of... 2022 and was so excited to see him in the movie and so to talk to this actor who i had watched for so many years as a youth and continuing through the course of my life he delivered an experience that was so much fun it was like you and i were quite happy to just sit back and listen to his stories and he was so gracious and fun and funny that i could have done that
0: for like three four hours absolutely and you know we were bound by times and he's a very busy man and we spoke about the book he's just brought out which i'll talk about a little bit again in a second but it, it it's just you know it it's fascinating to see someone whose career stretched that long and he's still so passionate about acting mm-hmm. and, and and just a sort of testament to the man i don't know if this bit will make the edit not what i'm saying now but a bit from the interview but julian told a story about uh something he did on stage that he was very proud of didn't get a lot of love and at the end of that he sort of whispered Was that too long? Right. Sorry for taking up your time. And that's just, I mean, if that doesn't signal what that man is like, I don't know what does. That he, uh, with the career he's had, cares about us two dorks and our time. Like, uh, uh, bravo to the man. One of my favorite
1: little bits, too, was um, when he was talking about how he really perfected his American accent. It was being complimented Mm. and told, you're going to work in the U.S. forever after this. And then never worked in the U.S. really again. Like, I thought that was a very funny, self-effacing joke. And uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of humor that just traces throughout all of these stories. And, I mean, when we talk to people on this show, some have more limited filmographies than others. But when you look at Julian Glover, he has almost 200 credits. He mentioned Tom Jones, one of his, I think his earliest film Mm. that he did, which won Best Picture that year at the Oscars in the 60s that is a really strong lineage of just like an actor who has worked consistently over the course of many decades of you know hollywood entertainment british film entertainment and you know
0: there's not a lot of these icons that we can talk to left and it's uh it's also interesting to point out because some might say why didn't you mention something like game of thrones to him particularly now Aside from the time constraints, because we really want to focus on the spy stuff and maybe his bigger characters, if you look it up, he didn't have the best time with Game of Thrones, and he chose to leave that show early. So maybe have a little look at that yourselves mm-hmm. about that. But I would also recommend picking up his book, q to A Career in Episodes, because it's not an autobiography. He He even makes a joke about autobiographies at the start of the interview about it's not one of those, you know, self-praising, anti-great books. It's more like factually looking at his work. I, I quite like that approach to it. Mm-hmm. It is a humble approach to your work, as if it's a trade that you're doing, and I, and I really like that.
1: Yeah, I remember reading Bryan Cranston's book, A Life in Parts, which, a little bit of a different tact, but it was really just telling small stories from the course of his life. These memories, as opposed to, like, I was born on this date in this location, and here's how I got from A to B to C to D to, you know, E. Um, I like this kind of approach that some people do when they're writing uh, kind of these, not biographies, but kind of these acknowledgments of their own work or careers, Mm. these sort of retrospectives, if you will. I like the idea of breaking up into kind of these bite-sized chunks and looking at, like, what the roles meant to him. Because he says, the best role, the worst role. And all these various facets of when you look at 200 credits, which ones stand out and
0: why do they stand out? Absolutely. And, and, and if you were going to write your book, it would be a life in part. <laughs> it would just be an entire description of the Condor Man episode. Of course. Of course. Of course. You would still stretch that out for 350 words though. Uh, pages, I should say. Words. Words, words. words makes more sense. <laughs> no, that's about my
1: autobiography.
0: It's <laughs> about 350 yeah. words. <laughs> it's a pamphlet. It just folds yeah. open. <laughs> One thing I, I think is a interesting thread that runs through the interview is, because you mentioned up the top about how Julian said he wouldn't really suffer fools in the interview and he would tell it straight for people that he didn't like. But the two big names that he spoke lovingly about, aside from Topple, was Roger Moore and Michael Caine. Now, if we look at Michael Caine for a second, he is kind of one half of the lead actors of this week's film the fourth protocol now julian couldn't remember much about filming it because really if you look at it he's probably only shooting for about a week because he's only really in those office scenes with michael Mm -hmm. maybe that's a couple of days it's probably not even that much work so i can understand how he forgets it but he didn't forget the story of michael kane taking everyone out for lunch yeah yeah and i think it's uh it's nice that Obviously, he has a filter for who he likes and dislikes, and he'll tell you which one people fall on the side of. And again, Michael Caine fell on the side of right. Yeah, we kind of failed in terms of asking him about actors
1: who there was really juicy gossip about. Because, yeah, he had really wonderful stories to say about Michael Caine working on a set with him, Roger Moore. And I think it just speaks to, like, kind of the responsibility you have when you are the top-billed member of a, you know, film. And how that kind of trickles down when you know Julian Glover was not top build in fourth protocol um, uh, and yet had these very fond memories of like how Michael Caine kind of set a positive vibe on the set the same with Roger Moore and then also from a director standpoint when he was talking about Steven Spielberg working on Last Crusade and how you know Connery improv that little moment that absolutely killed and how there was like a freedom on that set to kind of experiment and find the best Possible outcome to a scene, which I'm sure you're longing for, because this is all highly scripted, very scripted. And I'm really tired of your 350-word
0: outlines. And <laughs> no, they pages. Yeah, pages. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I think the other thing I I kind of wanted to touch upon was was Roger Moore again. Like he had a lot of stories, and I think it it's interesting to weave this again another thread through of talking to people about Roger Moore, you know, John Glenn spoke very highly of Roger. And I remember I was reading, I I, well, I, I actually popped on, uh, maybe it was about a year ago now, to the now defunct uh, James Bond to z podcast, you know, Long May She Reign, great mm-hmm. podcast. And I'm sorry to see them go. Yeah. You know, all the power to Tom and Brendan. Uh, and I would say they're still out there, guys. Check that podcast out. If you love James Bond, James Bond to z is one to check out. But I did a lot of research on Roger for, their episode of the spy who loved me and i just kept finding stories about him being a practical joker and an absolute charm on set and i was interested to hear from julian if that carried true to someone who actually worked with him as well because i was reading stories that other people would said in press and books where maybe julian would have said something different or maybe it was horrible to work with he said he didn't suffer fools but no roger moore was the man nothing but a, a professional to the end I, I just don't know how to... I don't have to really sort of elaborate further. I was just so pleased to know that a man who has such a large reputation is that man. You know, he he, he casts a big shadow, and rightfully so.
1: Yeah, I mean, when we talked to Gloria Hendry, she had very positive things to say about working with Roger Moore, but that was his first movie. Mm. So you never kind of know. Like, when Julian's working with Roger Moore, that's his fifth Bond movie. Mm-hmm. And... Roger Moore was at that point where it was like, is he going to retire from this role? Like, he could have been burnt out of making these movies every couple of years, and by the time Julian works with him, he's kind of like, yeah, 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 I've seen this. You know, like, th- this experience has kind of passed me at this point, and I'm not really having that much fun anymore. But it seems like, just talking to Julian, that Roger Moore was still very high-spirited and having fun and making the experience great for everyone he was working with. So that's just great to hear, and a tribute to Roger Moore, who... Obviously, you know, with him past, we'll never have him on the show. We'll never be able to talk to Roger Moore. But through talking to all of these actors who've worked with him, it really gives us a sense of
0: who he was as a person. And it's going to be our goal going forward to get a lot of these people that are still around that worked with him to sort of chronicle those stories and, and to get them into, you know, podcasts that are out there and should be out there forever, just to preserve them in a way, which I think is very important. The last note I wanted to bring up about Julian's chat is quite an important question i sort of snuck in at the end which was drawing the distinction of a lot of his characters that he played are villains yeah and and some actors could actually find that a bit of a bristly question because they don't like the idea of being typecast and things like that totally understand and we've been typecast as condor Man fans but i'm all for it (laughs) condor fans but yeah it was interesting to hear him actually sort of take ownership of that and say that, yes, he he did play a lot of them. It was more by choice of the casting people to do that. He did play some nice guys, as he said, but mostly not-so-nice guys. But he always tried to find a truth within the character and and try and make it, like, the audience could understand why mm-hmm. they were doing the things they did. They might not agree, but mm-hmm. you can understand why. Which I think is really the uh, the calling card of a good villain. Well, just listening to him talk about
1: how he tried to find the humanity within Christados in For Your Eyes Only, who, you know, you're playing a secret villain. So your motivations are somewhat obscured for a good chunk of the film and how he managed to make that character kind of pop. And then also talking about Donovan in The Last Crusade, who, again, a secret villain, but how he kind of took us through the course of understanding who Donovan was, why he would align himself with the Nazis to get to the, you know, the the Holy Grail um it was really interesting just to hear from a very accomplished actor about their process of
0: wrapping their head around playing you know as you said like a villain that just wraps up a little bit i think it it's it's really nice that we're getting these opportunities to talk to these people you know a couple weeks ago we had denise richards on the show julian glover i'm forever humbled that people are saying yes to us and i assure you all that our goal going forward and to continue going forward is to keep bringing these to you as much as we can and try and find interesting people to speak to i hope you all enjoy these interviews and and, and and yeah if there's someone you want us to speak to let us know because you know the denise richards interview came about because you guys made that motion online on twitter and it happened so if there's someone out there you want us to speak to let's let's make it happen together and let us know But uh, I'm really proud we got to speak to Julian. I'm a bit sad of kind of the news that came afterwards, but I'm glad we got to sort of have a story about Topple.
1: Mm-hmm. And not a heavy story. Like, that's the thing. It's like we were able to hear a story about Topple while we assumed he was still alive. And so it wasn't kind of under the uh, kind of the cloud of like, oh, like kind of this necessity of speaking positively about him at such a close time to his own passing. So I I actually kind of appreciate that, that it happened naturally and organically and
0: was just a fond remembrance. Absolutely. But it's time for us to leave the fourth protocol. It's been fun talking about the film. And the question goes to you, Cameron. What on earth are we talking about next week? Yes, we are talking
1: about 1926's The General, starring Buster Keaton, our first silent film ever covered on the SpyHards podcast.
0: It's one I've been looking forward to knowing that we're going to start looking at silent films, not every week, but that we're adding it in. But this is also (laughs) our earliest film ever. Yeah, uh, that would be amazing if
1: that was like our announcement that this was the new weekly focus of SpyHards was to chronicle silent films. (laughs) Yeah. uh, What a pivot. We'll have plenty of clips, plenty of clips in the episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Just dead air like the rest of the show. (laughs) Or just canned piano. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Um, well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to come on, come on, do the locomotion, and join us next week as we talk about The General. If you like what you heard on this interview, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast, And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, Cam, not that Jones, the other Jones.